Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a vision for you big book study. My name is Leah, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Friday, September 28, 2012. Today we are reading from the big book. We're on page 34, the second paragraph. And today's readers are Sarah, Monica, Kim, Sharon, and Paula. The share code for yesterday's meeting, Thursday, September 27th, 3078. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting for our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and the 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now call on Miriam to read the 12 steps. Thank you, Leah. This is Miriam calling from Israel. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives has become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we have harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11. Thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs and without our past. Thank you very much. Thank you. I will now call on Melanie to read the 12 Traditions. Thank you. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much for your service. My name is Melanie. I'm a compulsive overeater in Minnesota. The 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership 
is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous, except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service center... Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you for letting me share that, and I'll pass. Thank you. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature and then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone, except the speakers, should be muted. Today we resume our study of the big book. We're in Chapter 3, entitled More About Alcoholism. You'll find us on page 34, the second paragraph down, and I will ask Sarah to begin. Thank you. Good. Thank you, Leah. Good morning. Good morning, a vision for you. Um, my name is Sarah, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from New York. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. We are assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. Many of us felt that we had plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it, this utter inability to leave it alone no matter how great the necessity or the wish. It's, this is uh, The whole paragraph is highlighted because... Um, 
I had to recognize, when I came into the program this time, I had to recognize that I didn't know how to stop altogether. And I had to admit that I no longer had the ability to choose on my own will. And it says here, whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. It comes a certain point where you can no longer just put down the food and no matter it, and this is not a moral issue. This is an allergy of the body. It's an obsession of the mind that comes as a result of it, this disease. And I underlined a, a can quit upon a non-spiritual basis because this was a shift. This had to be a shift. Step one, we had to admit that we were powerless over our foods that our lives, our whole, it's affecting my whole life. My whole life became unmanageable as a result. And that lack of power, I needed to, what's the solution to that? Am I going to continue to live life on self-will, unsuccessfully, unmanageably? Or step two, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore, could power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So I needed a group, I needed an us, I needed the support of other people who understood, and I needed a sponsor who understood, and I needed um, a fellowship, like this beautiful fellowship on this line, and I needed a spiritual, I needed a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity because it wasn't working on my own self-will. So I had to move from self-will to God's will, the spiritual basis, which in turn has recreated my life and if I don't believe that it's recreated my life other people have told me so that I'm not the same person and I see um, and I see that it's it's indeed miraculous and um, the character that I that I thought I had before we many of us felt that we had plenty of character but the character that I had was not sufficient to get me to stop doing self-defeating behaviors. Only God has been able to help me stop from these self-defeating behaviors. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Sarah. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? This is Paula. Paula and then Katie, please. Thank you. Thank you. This would be Paula, Recovered Compulsible Reader. Well, here's a, a place where um, we all need to find ourselves if we're to go forward. There was a tremendous, and I'll tell you, this, that tremendous urge. He is so beautifully, uh, this is uh, the way Bill writes. It wasn't just an urge. Well, yeah, no, now it stopped. It changed. It grew. It grew. The tremendous urge to cease forever. Okay, we weren't going to say just today because we knew then tomorrow would come. So then we'd even enlarge on that. Just forever. Oh, Lord, I, could, I needed that. Yet we found it impossible. It didn't matter anymore. It didn't matter anymore. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it. And this is what the hundred are writing about. This utter inability to leave it alone. No matter how great the necessity of the wish, doesn't matter now. It's really necessary. Ooh, it's taken. It's really taken a hold. 
and it's now racking you up physically and mentally. It's racking you up in every area. There's nothing to turn to anymore. That's it. Nothing to turn to. No necessity. No matter how great. Or the wish. I'll wish it away. Not this time. Thank you for allowing me to share. With that, I do pass. Thank you, Paula. Katie, please. I'm Katie, a compulsive overeater, recovered today. Um, Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. I thought that I, once I got all this self-knowledge, that I would be able to stop on my own. And I thought I was spiritual. But the disease progressed to the point where I couldn't stay abstinent for one day. When I was younger, I could go on a diet. I could lose some weight, feel good, be happy for a few months, and then, you know, I would slowly start gaining the weight. Well, that window of being able to stop and start again, it pretty much shut completely. Like I could go to bed at night with great resolve, but once I got up in the morning, got out of bed, well, that resolve was out the window. I couldn't stop. So I, I utterly had to have a spiritual uh, thing because it didn't matter how much character I had. It didn't matter how smart I was, what I knew about program. I could recite the big book. I had done four steps. I had uh, been to 90 meetings in 90 days. I had done all of these things. And it did not matter. I was taking back my will. Lack of power, that was my dilemma. And I did not, um, I really felt hopeless when I finally uh, surrendered to this program, to the, to the concept that it wasn't about the food. It was about my mental state of thinking that I um, was unique. And I had to stop thinking I was unique and start believing what other people who were one step ahead of me were doing and that I had to put the food down no matter what. No matter what was going on in my life, the food had to stay down. And I didn't believe that. I always thought I was uniquely different and that um, my problems were worse than your problems, my life was harder than your life, and therefore um, I was, entitled to do things differently. It wasn't until I, I surrendered to the fact that I um, needed a spiritual solution and that I could not quit on my own. Uh, I still had this winking or lurking idea that I could quit on my own, and I had to let that go. That all pass. Thank you, Katie. Anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? This is Kim. Kim, your turn. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, my fellows. My name is Kim. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. We are assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. You know, every night when I go to bed when I was in high school, I would say, God, please make me a size 14. Please make me a size 14 because I didn't want to shop in the big girl stores. I never once asked God to help me stop eating. In fact, I didn't have a desire, and we have to be honest about that. I didn't want to be fat. 
I wanted to get a boyfriend. I wanted to feel comfortable in my own skin. But I didn't desire to stop. You know, the food was still working for me. I could still get that ease and comfort. I could still become numb, which was by the end was what I wanted to do. So we have to know, do we have a desire to stop? And that's why these chapters are so important. Because if we're just trying to chase the symptoms away, but we really want our food and we really want to keep eating, we're not ready. You know, and I so respect that. You know, when I'm working with someone and they, I get an email or a phone call saying, you know what, I don't think I'm ready. And I'm like, okay, when you're ready, come back. Because that's an important thing. Do we have that desire to stop? Because the saying, we're assuming it, but the fact is many of us don't want to. And why would we want to stop? Because it says, for those of us who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. And for years, what I wanted, to, wanted anyone to teach me, and even when I came to OA, teach me how to eat moderately. Teach me how to have one. Teach me how to have a Saturday where I can make exceptions. Teach me where I can have dessert on Tuesdays and Fridays. Teach me, teach me, teach me. But once I got to that point when I totally surrendered and realized I was unable to drink moderately, I was unable to eat moderately, I had to ask myself, how do I stop altogether? And that was a scary place to be. But that was the beginning of this journey to freedom. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? Yes, this is Catherine. May I share? Of course. Go ahead. Yes, yes. Good morning. This is Catherine, a compulsive overeater from Massachusetts. And, um, yeah, this paragraph, someone mentioned they have it highlighted. I have it highlighted, too. And, um, you know, for me, this, this is a reminder, and I need daily reminders of, of my condition, my disease. You know, many, many of us felt we had plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. When we reread again on page 30, which I also have highlighted, on the paragraph, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently maybe, had to be smashed. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. And on page 31, I also have highlighted, uh, we have tried every imaginable remedy. In some instances, there have been brief recovery, followed always by a still worse relapse. And there again, I'm reminded our disease is progressive, permanent, and fatal. On that, I pass. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you. Catherine, anyone else? This is Janice. Janice, go ahead. Thank you, Ms. Leah. Thank you very much. Good morning, Vision, for you. My name is Janice. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, Guy. You know, for those who are unable to drink moderately, you know, have, have you found yourself in that place, the big book is saying? You know, they've been leading us along through this information, showing us people who were like me, letting me identify that I was indeed one of these people. And then it's asking me that question, you know, have you gotten to that place where you too were unable to drink moderately? And if you got to that place where you were unable to drink moderately, well then what's the next step? How do you stop altogether? How do you stop altogether? And I used to ask myself that question because I, too, got to that place where it was 
becoming more and more obvious to me that no matter how great the desire or the wish, I could not stop and stay stopped. I could not stop and stay stopped because I'd stopped hundreds of times. But how do you stop altogether? But it's telling me clearly that whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis, whether or not I could go to a yet another diet club organization to my doctor, to my psychologist, and find a way through self-knowledge, through my own willpower to stop, if I, if I was no longer able to do that upon a non-spiritual basis, you know, it was dependent on whether I had lost the power of choice. And my experience showed me oh so clearly, oh so clearly, that that was me, that that was me, that I had lost the power to choose. And I fought that. I fought that because what did that mean? What did that mean? It meant that I needed a power greater than myself, a power greater than myself. If there is a God, if there is a God, I said to myself, that's what I'm going to need. You know, I felt like I had plenty of character. I felt like I had plenty of intelligence. I felt like I had managed my life in some ways and other ways, hadn't I? Hadn't I? But when I looked at that baffling feature, the utter inability to leave it alone, the utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the desire or the wish, I could say, that is me. That is me. It's a wonderful place to be today. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Janice. Thank you. My name is Leah, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I wanted to focus on this statement here. Uh, this is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it, this utter inability to leave it alone no matter how great the necessity or the wish. You know, we're talking about the obsession of the mind here in Chapter 3. Um, the big book is really, really giving me example after example of this obsession of the mind, the greater aspect of the disease, I had that utter inability to leave it alone no matter how great the necessity or the wish. I had the necessity. <laughs> I was uh, suffering from mental torture. I had great emotional turmoil. I felt like I was going to go crazy. Um, I had increasing medical consequences obesity, uh, the, um, the high cholesterol at such a young age, high blood pressure in my early 20s, shortness of breath. I had the necessity. I had the wish. There was no facet of my life that was not touched by this disease of compulsive overeating. You know, every part of my life was deteriorating. My social life, my emotional life, my mental health, uh, my physical health, my financial well-being. There, my, I was spiritually bankrupt, obviously. You know, there was isolation. There was deep depression, which was getting darker. There was suicidal thinking. Um, I had the wish. I had the necessity. And, you know... Uh, 
I would cry real tears at night. You know, what is wrong with me? Why do I eat like this? Why can I not stop? And I would make promises. I'm going to change. You know, I'm going to, I vow to change. I promise to change. I wish to change. And that night or the next day, I would binge my brains out. You know, uh, and a week later, a month later, hours later, I would say, I'm not going to live this way anymore. I don't want to live this way anymore. Exactly what this paragraph is saying. And this is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it. I mean, I was not stupid. I I was fairly bright. I had a good memory. Um, But my pain and my suffering had, had no memory. It had no memory. That's why the big book teaches me that this disease is cunning, baffling, and powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. You know, when I came here, um, you know, uh, the big book taught me that compulsive overeating is but a symptom of the problem. I knew everything there was to know about compulsive overeating. I had a wide variety of experience. I had a career of almost 20 years of mayhem in the bondage of this disease. What I didn't know prior to January 19, 1987, was how does Leah live in Leah without having to compulsive overeat to tolerate it? The obsession of the mind, that's the greater aspect of my disease. And with that, I pass. Anyone else want to comment on this paragraph? Press star one to unmute. Okay, then we will move on to the next paragraph with Monica, please. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, everybody. My name is Monica. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. How then shall we help our readers determine to their own satisfaction whether they are one of us? The experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful, but we think we can render an even greater service to alcoholic sufferers and perhaps to the medical fraternity. So we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. So in this paragraph here, they're ta- they're saying, um, we hope that uh, uh, you are coming to realize or understanding whether you're one of us or not, and and has the experiment of quitting for a period of time been helpful to you to decide whether you are one of us? You know, if you're not able to quit, or not able to stay quit, you could be one of us. And then it says, but we think. There's something even greater than this that we need to share with you. And so we shall describe some of the mental states that precede, that come before, a relapse. And what's a relapse? A return to drinking. Into drinking, for obviously this is the crux. What is the crux? The core, the most important part of the problem. So they're going to go on to tell us about mental states, you know, this, this, the, the greater aspect of our disease, the mental obsession that comes before we go back into the food. It means 
we've been sober, we've been abstinent, and then there's something that goes on mentally that precedes us picking that food back up again. And they're saying, well, obviously, this is the crux of the problem. This is the most important part of the problem. And it is. You know, we can all put the food down. The issue has been keeping it down. And with that, I shall pass. Thank you, Monica. Anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? Yes, good morning, Leah. This is Penny E. Penny E, go ahead. Good morning, good morning. Uh, Penny E, a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. This sentence here, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. You know, every time I read a sentence, I think, well, this is the most important sentence in the entire book, you know. But this really is. Uh, We in OA have so long been working programs of abstinence and not programs of recovery. And in my area, we have so many people relapsing, relapsing, in the disease, in the disease, into the disease. And what do we talk about? What food plan are you on? Did you eat this? What did that have that in it? You know, did uh, maybe you should go to a nutritionist? Nutritionist. We're eliminating. We're we're not acknowledging the crux of the problem, and the crux of the problem is the mental obsession in our mind. It says somewhere in the in our book here that uh, if we're in relapse, we shouldn't be alarmed. We will see quickly that we need to redouble our spiritual activities you know it has nothing to do with food plans the crux of the problem um i love it thank you for letting me share and i'll pass thank you anyone else this is sharon sharon Sharon, please thank you good morning this is sharon i'm a recovered compulsive overeater Uh, Good morning to all of you. Uh, Looking at this, uh, how then shall we help our reader determine to their own satisfaction whether they are one of us? I sat in the rooms of OA for years, years, going back and forth, looking around. Maybe I'm not really one of them. I literally was in the rooms, couldn't leave, wouldn't leave, because I knew if I left, uh, I would, I would, my food, my eating always got out of control. Uh, I would get some recovery. I, I was back and forth, back in the food, out of the food, but still in the rooms, struggling with the food. I can't eat. Let me try this. Let me try that. And but I was never, because I was not obese, I kept, I could, I kept going around and around. Maybe, I, you know, I don't eat like that. I don't, I'm, I'm, um, and so I would just go around and around in my head. And there, I, I believe it says the straight, here he goes on to say, so we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. And so what would happen, I would get into this delusion that maybe I'm not really a compulsive overeater, maybe I'm not like them, I'm not like this. 
And then I would go right back into, I would work myself right back into a binge, right back into the food. And so the crux of the problem, of course, centers in my mind. And that's why it's so difficult to to overcome this disease because we often rely on our own mind to get us out of the problem where it's our mind that's creating the problem. It's our thinking. It's it's the way we're addressing life. And so it, it really is a catch-22. And I thank God that I have found this program of recovery, that I have found a higher power that can help get me out of this morass of my mind, of going around and around in circles. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Anyone else would like to comment on this paragraph? This is Janice. Janice, go ahead. Thank you, Leah. How then shall we help our readers determine to their own satisfaction whether they are one of us? You know, what a great question. What a great question. And so they're going to tell me here, well, you can try the experiment of quitting for a period of time. See if that doesn't help you determine whether you are one of us. Because they've been showing me that here in the big book. And I tried that. So I knew. I knew from that aspect, in my own experience, I had not been able to put the food down, keep the food down. But the other thing that they're going to show me here is some of the mental states because that's what I needed to examine. That's what I needed to see that that's what I was like in order to determine, yes, indeed, I am one of them. And so they're going to describe to me those mental states. You know, there's a saying in the rooms of AA, the mind is a dangerous neighborhood and you ought not to go there by yourself. You know, that, that is what they're going to show me here. You know, I went into that mind without my higher power, and what always happened? What always happened? That baffling feature of alcoholism, being unable to stop and stay stopped. And so to know what happens when I'm stone-cold abstinent, what happens when the food is down, when I'm clean of any of my trigger foods and any of my binge foods, what happens that makes me start again? You know, that's what they're going to show me here. That's what I needed. That's the teaching, the guiding, the directing that I needed so that I could recognize and determine for myself. You know, we don't like to diagnose anyone. They're telling us that, again, you can determine for yourself. With this information, if you identify, you can determine for yourself. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you so much, Janice. My name is Leigh. I'm a real compulsive overeater. It says, so we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. The crux, meaning the most important point. Uh, The big book has taken its time with us, teaching us about our twofold illness, allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. That allergy of the body, the... um, that makes us a distinct entity from other people. The fact that when we pick up a substance, it triggers a phenomenon of craving, well, which, which uh, 
we develop, you know, that insatiable appetite for more of the same, right? It intensifies. It never satisfies. But that inability of ours to stop compulsive overeating once we pick up that first bite is is of little importance. Really, the issue is don't start. You know what I mean? It's academic. It is academic, the fact that we have an allergy of the body. What is the grave nature of our illness really is the obsession of the mind that precedes that first bite. Um, and if you think that the big book is being repetitive in trying to hammer that into our brains, you are correct. The big book is trying to teach that. You know, other people have allergies of the body. I'm sure, you know, I know many. I'm sure you know many as well. People who are allergic to peanuts or people who are allergic to shrimp or a whole variety of things. You know what? They just don't eat peanuts. They just don't eat peanuts. They remember the pain and the, and, and, um, the terror of ingesting a substance in which they receive or have an abnormal reaction, and they just don't eat peanuts, or they just don't eat shrimp. They don't need to go to Peanuts Anonymous or Shrimp Anonymous and talk about not eating shrimp. But with us, even though we intellectually realize that we have an allergy of the body, we have a worse problem than that, and it is a mental problem. It is the crux of our problem. Because even though we have history and a, a history of compulsive overeating, even though we know those substances trigger that phenomenon of craving, we have this mental obsession that keeps giving us permission to pick up that substance. It's like our pain has no memory. This mental obsession that this time it's going to be different. It's a strange mental twist. So the real problem is in our mind that convinces us that we can eat those substances and that we can indulge in those eating behaviors. That's our real problem. And if we don't believe we have that mental obsession, then we don't understand the necessity for these steps. And with that, I pass. Anyone else before we move on? Okay. Please, Kim, would you read the next paragraph? Okay. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first strike? Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he, and of what is he thinking? You know, this, once again, we're ramming that in. It, it's, it's in our mind. What were we thinking? What were we thinking? You know, at this point, we've differentiated between the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. You know, we understand once we put certain substances in our body, we're going to have that abnormal reaction. So now the bigger problem, as Leo puts it beautifully, is why will we then go back to it? We're not feeling that allergy anymore. That craving, is, that physical craving is gone. So why in the world would we go back to that? What is going on in our mind? You know, I think of things like, oh, my job is too hard. Like, I have to eat. I've been unemployed too long. I have to eat. 
It's been a good day. I deserve to eat. It's been a bad day. I deserve to eat. You know, I'm making too much out of this. If I just have it organic, it'll be okay. If only I eat after 8 o'clock, I'll be okay. If only I eat before 8 o'clock, I'll be okay. You know, all this empirical evidence is showing us over and over again the debacle that happens during that first drink. So once again, is the problem the first drink or is the problem that we have a mind that tells us the first drink will not get us this time? That 99% of the time, 99.9% of the time, we have these consequences and we keep searching for that 0.01% that it's not going to happen. You know, that's, that this time will be different. This time it's not going to happen. I'm going to try that desperate experiment one more time and I'm going to hope that this will be the magical moment. So it's not about the allergy of the body at this point. The food is down. How do we treat that mind? You know, the second step is came to believe in a power greater than ourselves that we could restore us to sanity. If we need to be restored to sanity, we have to admit that we're insane. And the insanity is in the mind and not the body. And with that, I pass. Thank you very much, Kim. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? Hi, this is Beth from California. Your turn, Beth. Um, yes, this is Beth, and I'm a compulsive overeater. And um, the first bite always makes sense to me. That's my problem. That's the crux of the issue for me. It always makes sense. So I need a power greater than myself to turn my mind, to change my mind, to give me you know, a, a spiritual change so that I don't have to overeat. Because that first bite always makes sense to me, whether I'm sad, happy, depressed, um, bored, um, if it's after, just after I've eaten dinner, just after I've eaten a meal, it doesn't matter. It always makes sense. And so I need a higher power that will change my mind. And that's what I need for a, a transformation. And that's what this program of recovery is all about. And thanks, I'll pass. Thank you, Beth. Anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? This is Janice. Janice, go ahead. Thank you. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic? Crazy thinking. That's what dominates an alcoholic. It is becoming more and more apparent to me as I read the big book that this is me. Friends, friends who have reasoned with him after a spree, which brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, are mystified, are mystified. Watchers have a very difficult job. Our friends and family, I don't know about your friends and family, but they watched me. They watched me. They tried to help me. They were mystified. They were mystified. Because no matter how great the consequences were, they would see me do it again. No matter how many times they'd heard, heard me make those sweet promises, like Bill W. made to Lois, Sweet promises, but this time it was going to be different. This time. And sometimes they would believe me, but they were mystified when I would walk directly back into the food and pick up, pick up that piece of birthday cake or pick up that, you know, whatever it was that my mind justified and rationalized and minimized what had happened to me every other time before that. You know, so what sort of thinking is that? It's the thinking of an alcoholic mind. You know, thank God, thank God 
they're going to describe that to me in ever greater detail. Because why does he? Of what is he thinking? People, happy emotional appeal seldom suffices. People who would beg and bleed with me because they saw how much pain I was in. They saw the guilt and the remorse, the terror, the frustration that I would wake up with. You know, but I began to isolate myself more and more and more in that kind of thinking, trying to hide, becoming secretive. You know, that is the greater aspect of the disease, what happens in the mind. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you very much. Anyone else? I'm Michelle, compulsive overeater in Minnesota. Go ahead. Yeah, um, for me, what comes to mind is one day I know I, um, you know, I understand that I have this this uh, mental blank spot and that I won't, you know, that if the lie comes in and I say to myself, it's okay to have a, have just one, this time will be different, I'll be able to quit tomorrow this time. And then, um, so I say to my, my, logically, I would think, well, then I'll just be on defense against that lie and I'll just watch my thoughts and when it comes, I'll say, no, no, that's a lie. So, the problem is I can't predict when I'll be able to recognize it as a lie or not because one day I can recognize it as a lie, maybe for a day, a week, a month, a year. But if I don't have a new mind, the time and place is going to come where the thought is going to come into my head and tell me it's okay to have one bite. You haven't had you know, sugar for eight years, so you should be able to eat it normally now. And if I don't have... Uh, spiritual experience, you know, awakening and stay spiritually fit, I am going to, the time and place is going to come where I'm not going to recognize it as a lie. I'm going to actually think that it's true. And I don't need to use willpower against something I think that won't hurt me when I actually believe it's not going to hurt me. So I pick up the first bite, carefree, thinking this time will be different. I'll be able to eat like a normal person. And then I take an action based on a lie and I run into the truth, the truth that, oh, whoops, (laughs) once a compulsive overeater, always a compulsive overeater. So I can't, the problem is I can't predict. Uh, I can't be on guard. A sick mind cannot deal with sick mind. This is is everyone's life. So I have to work the steps and continue to work them to have a spiritual experience and live spiritually fit so that when the lie shows up, because it does show up periodically, and I can look at that and go, oh, my God, there's, <laughs> I can recognize it. And I say, thank you, God, for letting me recognize it today. Because I know if I don't keep doing what I'm doing, the time and place will come up. I won't recognize it. And that's why everyone else is confused. They're like, well, you knew yesterday you couldn't have one. How come you forgot today that you couldn't have one? Very confusing, too to us and the non-compulsive With that, I'll pass. Thank you so much. Anyone else want to comment on this paragraph? This is Paula. May I share? Of course, Paula. Go ahead. Thank you. You know, it says clearly, so what sort of thinking dominates? So, and it's telling you, this is the sort of thinking that dominates time after time. And, you know, I, I love what it said in, in, in the thing, precedes a relapse. You know, like a horse and carriage, honey, that carriage ain't going anywhere without the horse. 
And it said here, the desperate experiment. See what it said the paragraph before. To their own satisfaction, whether they are one of us. Well, that's the last thing I wanted. The last thing I wanted was to be one of us. That would be the alcoholic. But then it said, it was so clear here. It's a desperate experiment. The first drink. Why? Because it says on the bottom, why does he? Because this time he does. He thinks it's going to be different. Even though he knows clearly it hasn't been before. It hasn't been before. Why does he? Doesn't want to be one of us. Mm -mm. And what is he thinking? I don't want to be one of them. But it's so clear here. That once that comes to place, that you really know, and you really need to know that you're a duck. I don't need to know it. You need to know that you're the alcoholic. Thank you for allowing me to share. And with that, I do pass. Thank you so much. My name is Leah. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. This statement teaches me so much in the big book. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? First of all, this uh, question teaches me that the real crux of the matter is in my thinking. It's in my mind. It is in my mind. And this type of thinking dominates my mind. Obsession of the mind dominates my mind. Dominates means to control, to govern, to rule by superior authority or power. You know, it is my master. You know, uh, the disease was my master. I served it. I bowed to the demands of my disease. So what sort of thinking, again, the big book is reminding me that the greater aspect of my disease is in my mind, in my thinking. And that this thinking dominates me, dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink. It's not, it's not the tenth drink that does the alcoholic in. That's a no-brainer. Anybody that drinks alcohol to excess is going to have consequences from that alcohol. No-brainer. The real problem is that first drink. The real problem for people like you and I is that first bite. The first bite. Even after years of research, why is it? You know, I was not stupid. I was fairly bright. I had a good memory. See, if you burn your hand on a hot stove, chances are you're always going to remember that. I never had an obsession of the mind to continue to put my hand on a hot stove. I remember that pain. I remember the pain and suffering of a flame touching my flesh. I remember that. Now, compulsive overeating burned me over and over again, you know, for two decades. But for some strange reason, left to my own devices, left to my own resources, I could not remember what compulsive overeating did to me. All I would think about, the only thing that would dominate my mind was what those binge foods were going to do for me. And when I said I'm not going to act like that anymore, and when I said I wasn't going to do that anymore, I meant it. But then I ate again and again and again and again. That is the obsession of the mind. And what I needed was a new mind. I needed a spirit-guided mind. 
so that I could be governed by something else. Instead of being governed by the obsession of the mind, what the program of recovery allows to happen is that I go from being governed by the obsession of the mind to being governed by God. Once the ego and intellect is fired as one's uh, master, it can be replaced by a different master, and that is God, a higher power, a higher power. I needed a new mind, a spirit-guided mind, and I got that through the process of the 12 steps. With that, I pass. Anyone else like to comment on this before we move on? This is Christy. Christy, go ahead. Good morning, everyone. This is Christy, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And, you know, we read over and over again about that first drink in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, that first drink. And in, a, in OA, we say, you know, before you take that first compulsive bite of food, call us. First bite, first bite, first drink. So that tells me what order that bite is in. It's the first one. It's the first one. And I did not understand that for years. For years, I did not understand it was the first bite. What that meant was that I couldn't ingest any, any into my system. And what I told myself for years and years and years, that it was that bite that put me over the edge. That bite, that one bite, that first bite, that first bite, this is the way I interpreted that first bite, you know, I could have 100 bites, but that 101st bite that made me too full, that was the one I had to watch out for. That was the one I had to be aware of. That was the one I wanted to stop before. That was the one. And I did not, you know, I didn't want to give up that first bite. I wanted to eat. You know, as someone else said, I wanted to learn how to eat moderately. I wanted to learn how to eat what I wanted and not suffer the consequences. I wanted to eat with complete abandon and, and not feel like I wanted to crawl out of my skin when I was done. You know, I felt like I wanted to crawl out of my skin before I started. And then I felt like I was going to burst out of my skin when I was done. You know, I... Uh, I fought that for years and years and years. And, you know, when I came into OA, I did not come in looking for a spiritual experience, and I didn't come in with a belief in a power greater than myself. That is not why I walked in the door. That is not why I walked in. I walked in because I was beaten, and I was desperate. I was desperate. You know, and I was tired of trying that desperate experiment over and over and over again and having the, you know, the same result. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I knew that whatever they were going to offer me through the principles of the 12 steps or whatever it was I had to do was better than what I was doing. It was better than what I was doing. You know, I had waited to be struck by abstinence. I had tried, I mean, my, my bag of tricks, like my bag of candy was empty. I was done. I couldn't stand it anymore, not one more day. I couldn't live the way I'd been living, not for one more day, not for one more day. And it wasn't until I came in the rooms that I was taught that it was that first bite. I had to avoid those foods altogether, not food altogether, but those foods that caused me problem. It might taste sugar, fat, flour, volume. So there is volume. I had to eat specific amounts of foods because, I, you know, that thing that was broken in me was irreplaceable. It was unfixable. That switch that said, stop, you're satiated, you're done, you're full, you're satisfied. 
none of that worked in me. It was broken. It had long since broken. And, you know, I mean, I don't know where you are, but that's where I was when I came in. I, I didn't have an understanding of my disease. I did not walk in with an understanding of my disease except that in my core, in my core, I knew that I couldn't live the way I'd been living. And anything had to be better. Anything had to be better. Give me something. Give me something that I can sink my teeth into, so to speak. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Christy. And with that, we are out of time. Thank you to everyone who has shared this morning. We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Sharon, will you please read a vision for you? Absolutely. This is Sharon, a recovered compulsive overeater. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny.